Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Last year, we shared a mini-series called Crypto for Institutions to cover the basics of the rapidly evolving ecosystem from an investor's perspective. Through conversations with Eric Peters at One River, Michael Sonnenschein from Grayscale, Seth Jins from CoinFund, and Ari Paul from BlockTower, we covered the case for Bitcoin, a path to access, investing beyond Bitcoin, and trading strategies. Over the next three weeks, we'll dive in a little deeper with Crypto for Institutions 2. This six-part miniseries explores where we are today in the rapidly evolving world of crypto and blockchains. We'll share conversations with the leading allocator to the space, four top managers, and a key service provider. The miniseries is strategic in nature, allowing us to learn without requiring technical lingo and expertise. For those interested in a more technical exploration, I'd encourage you to listen to Web3 with A16Z, Colossus's Web3 Breakdowns, and the Pump Podcast. Crypto for Institutions 2 is brought to you by Anchorage Digital. Anchorage Digital is the premier crypto partner for institutions. It offers custody, trading, financing, staking, governance, and the first federally chartered digital asset bank, all with unparalleled security. With support for a wide variety of digital assets, Anchorage is trusted by hedge funds, venture capital firms, banks, family offices, fintechs, treasuries, and asset managers. Learn more at anchorage.com slash cap. That's anchorage.com slash C-A-P. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on the fourth episode of Crypto for Institutions 2 is Olaf Carlson Wee, the founder and CEO of Polychain Capital, a $5 billion investment firm that was one of the first institutional crypto funds upon its launch in 2016. Olaf is among the crypto OGs. He was the first hire at Coinbase and led risk management before founding Polychain with initial investments from Sequoia, A16Z, Union Square Ventures, and Founders Fund. He was named to both the Forbes 30 Under 30 and Fortune 40 Under 40. Our conversation explores Olaf's vision for what's to come in the crypto ecosystem. We cover his early discovery of cryptocurrency, his experience at Coinbase, and his founding and strategy at Polychain. We then turn to Olaf's perspective on the present and future of incentive systems, social media, bear markets, layer one protocols, bridges across protocols, NFTs, DeFi, DAOs, and stablecoins. I hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, 
This week, if you happen to be in a married or committed relationship, and one night you turn to your partner and say, Hey babe, what do you think? And they turn back and say, Sorry hon, not tonight, I have a headache. Why not turn a lemon into lemonade by responding, I have a better idea. Let's listen to the Capital Allocators podcast together. You can snuggle up and share a night of stimulating intellectual bonding. Thanks so much for spreading the word to your partner. Please enjoy my conversation with Olaf Carlson Wee in the fourth episode of Crypto for Institutions 2. Olaf, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd love to start going back 10 years or more. And how did you first get interested in the whole crypto world? It was the summer of 2011, and I read a Gawker article about Silk Road, and it mentioned Bitcoin as being the catalyzing technology that made that possible. So I started reading about Bitcoin, and right away really was thrown into a bit of an obsession with the entire concept presented, which was this, at that time, not really an industry but more like just an open source piece of software you could download and a community of users on forums. And there were a couple very small scale businesses built around buying and selling Bitcoin. But at that time, it was really more just an open source software project. This concept of a sort of non-state money that was algorithmically determined monetary policy and a decentralized user base that would determine what sort of software to run in sort of a decentralized consensus. It was all just extremely fascinating to me. And I felt like I stumbled on this amazing, amazing new technology. And I really did have a feeling that the world didn't know about this at all. So I really got quite into it that summer. And I was going to my senior year in college and had to decide a thesis topic and decided to write it on cryptocurrency which only took me further into the rabbit hole. What was it that resonated so strongly with you? This was in the wake of the great financial crisis of 2008. I was studying sociology and asking a lot of heady questions that you have a lot of time to think about in college. And a lot of these questions were things like, how does private property work? What's the relationship between private property and the state? And what is money? And who makes these decisions about things like the 2008 crisis management bailouts and things like that? So I think I was a bit jaded with large-scale institutions of all types. In general, the financial sector and the government, especially the intersection there. So when I started reading about cryptocurrency, it just felt like this incredibly powerful vortex where once you learn about it, you can't unlearn about it, you sort of have this alternative to the state-issued money that's sort of a better product for the end user. And at the time, I wasn't really thinking very much about decentralized applications or Web3 or things like that that we talk about today. I was really just thinking more about basically like an electronic gold sort of thing. I just felt like this is going to be the unified money of the new internet-based and highly globalized economy. And it wasn't going to be tamper-proof. There was going to be no manipulation by even the people who created it. All of it was just extremely fascinating to me. It led me to learn about a bunch of the technical areas. I didn't know very much about cryptography. I'd heard about cryptography in kind of an abstract context, being used for military communications, and led me to learn all about the cryptography behind Bitcoin and how that works. It was just a fascinating thing to fall into. But the further and further I got, the more and more obsessed I got with the concept and the higher and higher conviction I had that this was the important technology of my era. So at that point in time, led by Bitcoin, you could trade. But how did you think about leaving college and working in the field when it really wasn't built up to the ecosystem it is today? I put most of my life savings in Bitcoin that summer in 2011. I think it was $500 or $700 or something like that. But I really wanted to get involved, one, because I cared about it and liked it, but two, it was the only relevant skill I had at all. So when I graduated from school, I went on a long road trip 
keep in mind, like the whole quote industry here was basically Mt. Gox in Japan, and then just a couple tiny companies, Bit Instant. Every company in crypto was kind of five people, and there wasn't venture backing in general here at this stage. It was just maybe somebody gave somebody a hundred grand to start the business, but it was not the way we think about it today. So I was thinking about what I wanted to do. And really, Bitcoin was the only area that I had substantial background and knowledge in a way that other people didn't. I ended up in the Bay Area. I was interested in broadly startups, entrepreneurship. I was the 30th user of Coinbase. And at that time, my parents actually got me a tent as a gift when I graduated school. And I'd been sort of crashing on couches and living out of a backpack for the better part of a year and working as a lumberjack. And I knew about Coinbase and I thought the site was great. I just thought the product was excellent. I was using it and I knew that this type of product was going to be absolutely necessary, every component of it, both third-party custody as well as a buy and sell that's more like a PayPal-like experience. I knew that that was going to be critical to making Bitcoin go more mainstream and grow the economy and everything. So I just cold emailed Coinbase. And in part, it was really the only job that I was qualified for meaningfully. To this day, it's still the only job I've ever applied for. What was your path from your couple of years there to starting Polychain? Once I joined Coinbase, I got a really intense, just hardcore, rapid lesson in scaling hypergrowth company. I started as just frontline customer support. And for basically anybody who wrote a support ticket in the year 2013, very good odds that I was replying to you personally every time. A year later, I had a team of over 40 people that were reporting to me, managing effectively all of customer support, of course, and then our anti-fraud process and operations to an extent. We got a chief compliance officer in the latter part of that year, but I was also in charge of looking at a lot of the compliance stuff. I mean, this was very early. The company was like five people, so somebody had to do it. I was not qualified to do these sorts of things, but I'm not sure anybody was qualified to really do anything on paper. It was just an insane lesson in how to scale a company really, really rapidly. I also learned a lot about what it meant to think about product. And because I was interacting with every single customer problem, I learned very intimately the ins and outs of the early Coinbase product and how to make it better, basically, and what people cared about. And it's not always obvious what you think people care about. But if you talk to users, you can always figure it out. I think that experience got me even more interested in entrepreneurship and just the idea of building something and watching it scale, watching it grow and making it work. And it's grueling. It's really, really hard. And after three and a half years at Coinbase, the company had scaled up significantly. I had at that point worked most of the time as head of risk, which was sort of a fraud and security role. Then I was thinking about what company to start in the crypto space. And this concept of sort of a crypto fund that's not a traditional VC, but more so crypto native, as we now say, and investing directly into digital assets rather than just a traditional venture capital equity style financing. That just seemed like a gap. And in hindsight, it was a big gap, but nobody really realized, I think, how big that category would be at the time, including myself. I'd love to ask you two questions about some of those things in that time at Coinbase. So the first is you talked about experiencing and learning a lot about hyperscaling companies. What are the big takeaways in maybe what you learned that you never could have known without being in that environment? One of the big things I learned is that when you are acting from a place of absolute desperation, you actually are forced to do extremely creative things. And oftentimes, the best path is to just act rapidly and not worry about everything being perfect. Get a passing grade on everything instead of trying to get an A+. Plus in any particular category. And you have to be very comfortable with just chaos. Everything is going to feel like it's breaking and nothing is going to feel like it's really actually working the way you had hoped. 
just continue forward anyway. And you just focus on survival and you focus on the big picture. And you don't get caught up in the fact that the whole process of it is a complete mess and it's changing constantly. So if you create some sort of system and you're going through that type of growth, that system 90 days later is probably going to no longer be working. So if you spend a month trying to refine every system you have, it's never going to work. It's like you're digging out a hole that's filling in much faster. So we had to do all sorts of really bizarro things to just get by and survive. An early example of that was the fraud rate was very high for Coinbase in the early days. People were buying with stolen bank account credentials. And this is a common problem across that consumer financial industry. So PayPal, all these e-commerce sites, they all run into this. It's not unique to Coinbase per se, but Bitcoin is a particularly nice target because, of course, once you get it, relatively speaking, you can sort of just vanish with it. And we wanted to build these sophisticated machine learning models to detect fraud and all this. But the bank said that they were going to take away our bank account if we couldn't get the fraud rate down in 30 days. I told Brian, listen, if you just let me manually review every single buy, all you need to do is create sort of like an admin dashboard that feeds in the data about every buy. And I will review it one by one by one. Every single day, every buy, I will manually ban the ones that look fraudulent because I saw all the chargebacks. So I had a great data set in my head, a black box model of what the fraudsters looked like. And I would just pattern match and manually review every buy. And I mean, this took three hours every day. Eventually, I had to have a whole team doing this. And it was not sophisticated. It was not our beautiful machine learning model that was training and getting smarter every day and detecting new anomalies. It was just me and a bunch of people I hired off of Reddit in a chat room talking about how the scammers were adapting and stuff. But it worked. We kept the bank account because we got the fraud rate down so rapidly. So stuff like that, it's not pretty and it's not elegant, but you just have to get the job done. And I learned to thrive in that environment. Now with hindsight, it's a very important entrepreneurial skill. Being able to just get it done and not fret about the fact that the way you're doing things is not going to scale very well. And you just need to be comfortable with that. You also mentioned on the product side, as you were learning about product, that some of the things that you did aren't what people would have expected or what the customer wanted aren't what people would expect. What's an example of that? So basic stuff at that time, people just wanted higher limits. They wanted to buy more Bitcoin and people wanted fast delivery. So one of the things about the Coinbase product back then was bank transfers in the United States between a U.S. bank to a U.S. bank using the ACH system are comically slow. It takes about three days to clear. And this is based on a check clearing system that's been adapted to computers. It's like a joke how bad the system is. What it means is that we couldn't deliver people's Bitcoin until that cleared safely. But then we realized that there were all these little optimizations you could do. So we created sort of an algorithm that would detect the probability that somebody had insufficient funds. And we would deliver the Bitcoin faster based on that algorithm. We would also algorithmically place someone into a tier of fraud risk. So the thing preventing very high limits was fraud. The bad guys hurt the good guy's ability to buy. So we created a tier system where we would create an algorithm. This was a bit later. We obviously had more engineering power after all that manual review. And we put people into a certain sort of bucket and the bucket would allow them to buy or sell more or fewer amounts of Bitcoin. So all those sorts of things, they're small optimizations around the edges. They don't feel like a new product. You're just refining that core product, but it leads to substantially higher volumes and way happier customers. I think one thing that we screwed up a bit at Coinbase is throughout 2014, 2015, we tried to launch all these new products. We were launching like a tip button that you could embed and tip people on Reddit. We were very focused on merchant integrations for people to accept Bitcoin for payment. And we launched all sorts of other just really weird, bizarro products during that time. Nobody remembers any of this stuff because the core product was buy and sell Bitcoin in an easy to use way. 
in hindsight, we should have just been refining and perfecting that core product. That was sort of my view talking to customers. I was like, nobody cares about the tip button. What people want is their Bitcoin in two days instead of three days. And they want to be able to buy 50 Bitcoin instead of 20 Bitcoin. Bitcoin was a lot cheaper back then. I think that once you have product market fit, this was another lesson I took is the scale you can achieve with basic product market fit is often a lot higher than you realize. If you have a thousand happy customers, you can probably find like 10 million happy customers. I think we underestimated the scale of that core product and how successful it was. And don't build these new products and new experiments unless you really have to. That sort of Google X phase of the company should come pretty late. That first product, you should squeeze it for everything you can before you start getting distracted. So let's turn to 2016 and you started talking about a different kind of venture fund or different kind of investment fund, crypto native. What was your original sort of investment thesis going in? I knew all of these engineers and researchers that were working on incredibly cool projects, but the end thing was like a crypto protocol. This was on Ethereum. This was projects like MakerDAO. And outside of Ethereum, these were projects like Tezos, projects like Cosmos. Polkadot was being sort of conceptualized around that time. And these aren't businesses in the traditional sense. There's not really an equity entity like a Bitcoin Inc. that sits behind the system and extracts revenues from it. It's a peer-to-peer protocol system that's being developed. These engineers and developers, I thought that a lot of these concepts were really brilliant. I understood why they could be important. I had spent years looking at this stuff and going very deep on crypto tech, but there was no funding model. There was not one person in the world that could wrap their head around what it was and understand that to fund this, you can't think about it like traditional revenue business. You have to just buy a digital asset. So it was a, in hindsight, a massive vacuum in the market. So I sort of started Polychain and was doing deals immediately. I think the first deal I did three days after I launched the fund was to fund Tezos. Shortly after that was Cosmos. And this was also during the beginning of the ICO or crowdfunding wave. And I was a massive participant in those crowdfunds throughout late 2016, early 2017. Of the ICOs that I did want to do, there weren't a bunch of them, but maybe there were three or four of them. I was the biggest participant in those by a huge amount. I think that there was just a big gap in the market where the existing venture groups really weren't wrapping their head around basically owning a token and weren't wrapping their head also around Ethereum. That was the other big part of this, was I basically wanted to own as much Ethereum as possible. How did you think about your investment strategy at the time? Funnily enough, it's the same as it was back then, which is understand a new technology, a new approach, and why it's important, why it will enable new behaviors, new applications that are not possible with the existing tech stack, invest early, and then hold for the long term. I still do the same thing. Over the last couple of years, evolution of, as you said, equity in businesses, tokens, different forms of investing in the space. How did you think about structuring your investment strategy so that you could participate however you wanted to in the space? So I designed the fund from a structural perspective to match what I wanted to do in terms of investing in that fund exactly. So Instead of doing a traditional venture drawdown structure, I structured it as an evergreen, more like, quote, hedge fund. Again, we're long only venture style approach, so not exactly hedging, but I designed the whole fund to be oriented around this type of investing. When it came to hiring people, I hired people that were oriented around this specific type of investing. So from the beginning, I never was targeting people from Sand Hill Road with a traditional VC approach, nor was I targeting anybody from Wall Street. I was targeting basically other people like me that were grassroots crypto people that understood the technology, understood the market, had connections in the space, just designed everything from the beginning with that in mind. And then over time, we got really serious about on-chain participation. Now we've leaned into that super deeply. So we've always had engineers more on the practical engineering side people implementing staking, 
DeFi participation, on-chain governance participation, all of that kind of work, which is just part of being a crypto investor. When you hold Google stock, it's not an asset that gets sort of activated and used in a system, whereas in a crypto asset, it really is a useful asset a lot of the time. I'd love to hear how you go through the evaluation process for a new investment. First, I just like to read about the concept. Sometimes that's like a paper if it's a more formal system. Other times it's a slide deck if it's more like a business being built in this area or just not as technical of a formal system. That's where most stuff gets filtered because I know ahead of time the categories that I like and I know what I want to invest in broadly before I ever read anything. A lot of the time, I'm just sort of waiting for an entrepreneur to come around in the category that I'm looking for. Once I find something that's in that category that I like, then it's basically just a series of conversations with the founding team who's either sort of the founder or the inventor of that technology or that business model. I'm trying to just assess how they think about it and how they think about building it and make sure that we're strategically or almost a bit spiritually aligned on how they want to go about it. From there, it's continuing to think about it. Being a professional investor, it's a lot of thinking and a lot of reading. It's not as much this operational heaviness that came with, say, a Coinbase. It's like, okay, we have 10,000 unanswered support tickets. How do we get through these? We have 10,000 investment opportunities. How do we pick one? It's a lot more cerebral, I would guess, than an operator role. What are the categories that you like today? This is a common one that people are talking about, but I really do think that this concept of attaching a proof of work type system to different types of behaviors, this sort of consensus building, the way we've done it in the past. So the way Bitcoin hashing leads to a block reward, it's basically what other types of behaviors could you coordinate people around using like a protocol block reward type system. So a lot of times people call this play to earn, like play a video game, earn the block, earn the reward. But really, I sort of view it more broadly as it's kind of like the future of work and labor and the relationship between capital and labor. And I think it can be applied to a large swath of categories of labor over time. And that is a very big idea to me, which is basically we could not just program something like Bitcoin mining, but we could program a whole industry potentially around these work and reward systems. So I do think that video games are sort of the first sandbox for that because it's a very neatly defined type of work because you're basically creating fake parameters. It's like a fake setup followed by a fake reward system in that artificial setup. But I think that that type of design mechanism can be applied to more and more types of basically labor done on computers. So if your job is on a computer, I think that there's some chance that you can replace a lot of those hierarchical, centrally managed, almost like HR style systems with protocol systems where you effectively work for block rewards in a sort of DAO-like context, and it might kind of look like a gamified style mechanism, but really you're producing something productive for somebody. I think this idea of replacing a lot of labor and capital markets with protocol systems is a very, very big idea to me. I think play to earn is like the very tip of the iceberg of if we can make this work in a video game, can't we apply this to other more substantive areas of the economy. And it's not going to be easy in that you have to be able to define things in a protocol. You don't have a manager saying they're doing good work. Let's continue to pay them. You really have to have a computer system doing those judgments. But I think that a lot of different types of labor could be defined that way. And I think that's just a massive idea. What might be the next use case after video games and this labor economy pay-to-earn type model? I'm excited about contributions to open source software and machine learning models. What I mean by that is there are these systems that can look at a static Git repository and actually try to quantitatively assess which engineers contributed to that Git repository. If you could come up with an algorithm that approximately 
fairly measured contribution to that code repository. And again, it only has to be as fair and as high quality as basically like a manager in a tech business context. It doesn't need to be perfect. But if we could create an algorithm that does that, you could, for example, create a DAO, like a crowdfunded pool of capital that says, we are going to pay people for building this software. And then people that build that software, you use that static Git repository assessment to review which engineers contributed what, and the DAO programmatically pays out those engineers based on those contributions. You sort of remove this layer of company, legal entity, management, HR, et cetera. And you just move straight from capital to worker, in this case, a software contributor. And I think it's a net win for everyone. I think that if you can pull that off, you can get the engineers to be paid significantly more because there's basically not this middle management business layer that's extremely inefficient relative to just running it all on software. And for the capital, you also have instant grassroots bottom-up coordination of the engineering instead of this top-down like, oh, we have to interview people and it's terribly inefficient relative to, say, the bottom-up market-based approach that you see with Bitcoin hashing. Bitcoin hashing is an insanely efficient market and nobody centrally manages it. It's all based on bottoms-up incentives in a global marketplace of competition. And because of that, it's an extremely competitive area. So that competition is net beneficial for every Bitcoin holder. It leads to the highest hash rate that you could possibly imagine for the block reward and the size it is. So I think similar mechanics, using a DAO to crowdfund for writing open source software could work. That feels like if we could make that work in a narrow case, maybe it could work to build massive software companies. I mentioned machine learning. That's just another one, which is how could we use a block reward to pay people that are contributing to a machine learning algorithm? Could we build an open source Google that is competitive with all of the proprietary AI and machine learning algorithms that Google and Facebook and the other big tech companies have by using an open source protocol to reward people that are trading those models? So again, that end product there, if you could narrowly define it as just a machine learning algorithm, lots of gotchas, I'm sure, that I haven't thought of, but it does seem possible. And if you could make it possible in a narrow use case, all of a sudden, a huge category of industry opens up and it just feels like you could apply it to basically like a huge swath of GDP. These mechanism designers that are just building these open source mechanisms without knowing it are sort of going to become the designers of the new future economy. All of their designs are going to be used in ways they could never have perceived. That's the other very mind-boggling part of this is as a protocol engineer and designer in the crypto space, once you let the genie out of the bottle, you have no control over the way it's used. I don't think that anyone who created Ethereum thought that we would be trading, as everyone jokes, pixelated monkeys on this, and they have no ability to control that. But that is the beauty of it to me. That is the design. Even the people that invented the thing have no power over it. And therefore, it really is just this open access system that is not manipulatable by any entity or person. So beyond this play-to-earn block reward category, what are some of your other favorite big idea categories going forward? I don't think that this is a huge novel insight on my part, but this idea of these centralized platforms that have this very tumultuous relationship with their users and creators. I just think this is one of the big broken pieces of the internet today, is that YouTubers who make their entire career on YouTube don't like YouTube. They have a bad relationship with YouTube. People on Instagram who make their whole career posting on Instagram don't like Instagram. It's this very hostage relationship. It's like a Stockholm syndrome. I rely on this platform, but I do not like it. And I am held captive by it. There's no alternative. There's no forking off. There's no mechanism to break the rules because even if my followers or users want me to. So that just feels like it's a really broken piece of the internet. And it's a little blurrier to me exactly what it looks like and exactly what role crypto plays in this. But it does feel like if you can create an alternative distribution and alternative monetization mechanism, and I do think part of it may be the disentangling of those two things. So today you monetize on Instagram and you distribute through Instagram. 
it's not like you distribute on Instagram, but you monetize with NFTs. The idea that you could disentangle distribution and monetization potentially and refine each of them separately, I think that there is something there. And that is massive. It's just absolutely massive because the entire internet native economy is based on these media distribution platforms and the associated monetization with those. And I do think that this emergent stuff in crypto that allows artists and other types of creators to basically monetize separate from their platform that they distribute through is very important to pay attention to. Because if you can disintermediate all those big creators from their platforms using crypto, that is just significantly bigger than crypto is today. So you mentioned earlier that sometimes you'll have these defining categories that you like, and then you're waiting for the right technologists, the people to come along with the project you like. There's been so much volatility. We're in another potentially crypto winter. You've been through a whole bunch of them before. How do you think about the wherewithal of the people that are pursuing one of these projects, both to technologically develop what you'd like to see, and then also to have the gravitas to make it through these rocky periods, at least in the pricing of some of these assets? I just think everything really great in crypto, I think most of it was forged in a bear market, or it survived a bear market. This is actually most of crypto is these bear market moments. And then this crazy rush six-month period where everyone's talking about it and all your relatives are asking you about it and all this stuff. And then it goes away and you're sort of back to normal. It's funny because the bear market to me from a time perspective is sort of the norm in crypto. (laughs) And then we have to build our way out. We have to build useful things. We can't just sit back and wait for the next cycle to happen. You really need to create useful and interesting things for people so that new people want to come in and start using these products and participating in this new crypto economy. It is the hard times in a way, but it's the time. If you get used to the bull market and think that this peak mania is the normal thing, you're not going to last long in crypto because where we are now really is more often the normal thing. I just think that the opportunity is at a maximum when the sentiment and pricing is at the lowest. So what is getting forged in this bear market? I think a lot of amazing ideas really were created throughout call it late 2020 and all of 2021, basically. But I don't think they were really tested in a sort of, does actually anyone care about this type of way, including stuff like play to earn. There's very powerful feedback loops both directions with play to earn. If the price is going up, there's more users. If the price is going down, users leave. And it's like, how many of these users were here because they liked the product and not just because of some sort of speculative mania? I just think that we need to really test all those ideas that came out of this previous cycle. 2017, it wasn't that different. I mean, we had this concept of DeFi. The word DeFi didn't exist yet, but we were seed investors in 0x, which was the first order book system embedded inside Ethereum. We were seed investors in compound finance, in DYDX, and a lot of those deals happened around that peak mania late 2017, early 2018. But we had to sort of test them and really refine them. And we didn't fully get them refined until 2020 for that DeFi category. And that's when it really blew up and people realized, wow, this works. And we can actually embed the future global financial system inside a blockchain, asterisk, once it scales. We just need to test it out. A lot of the ideas that I'm talking about, conceptually, they're there. But we need to get pragmatic and real about the implementation. And that's the harder grind. All this stuff I'm saying about disintermediating platforms from their creators, that creators can monetize directly from their fans and followers, or video games with embedded digital objects and pay you to play it. These aren't really radical things to think of, in my opinion. I think it's relatively intuitive. I think building it is 1,000 times harder and getting all the details right and actually grinding through and making it work. But the people who do that they then become the most important entrepreneurs in this whole industry. I'd love to walk through some of the more common categories of some of the ecosystems and blockchains and just get your views on 
which ones you think will be survivors and winners? Maybe start with just layer one protocols. I'm a big believer in modular architecture for the future of layer one protocols and the associated layer two systems built on top of them. Meaning, I think is a system of bridges and chains, and I include layer twos in that description. And I think that you're just going to see many different applications that are suited for different platforms. If you want to trade assets worth pennies, you might not need this sort of security and finality from Ethereum. If you want to do a $10 million flash loan, maybe you do want the security afforded by Ethereum and you're willing to pay for that. I just think that there's on just the level of cost versus security, a very wide spectrum that you can't easily fit inside a single chain. In addition to that, I think that there's other features that are nice for different application developers. For example, the programming language that you use and the features of that programming language. Again, it's hard to fit all of this into a single architecture. So I just think there's going to be multiple architectures with different app developers preferring different architectures or platforms for their app. Then you're going to need composability and interoperability across all those systems. So I don't know five years from now which layer ones are going to be the most valuable because I think Most use and most valuable have historically been correlated. I'm not sure they'll always be correlated. For example, Ethereum has substantially more use than Bitcoin on an on-chain kind of way. It has for a really long time, but Bitcoin is more valuable. So if you're asking from an investment perspective, that adds another layer of complexity to reason about, which is where does value accrual fit with where application developers build, where users go. But in terms of a use, what has the most use? It's basically where can you carve out differentiation so that app developers and thus users want to build there. I think there is space for a bunch of different layer one chains. I don't mean hundreds, but I do mean a half a dozen to a dozen. Use might be an easier question to answer as an investor than value accretion. And I'd love to get your thoughts on, in that great example used with Bitcoin versus Ethereum, but across the different chains where you think conceptually value will accrete? I think that every blockchain in the long term needs to have a tightly coupled mechanistic value accrual mechanism between use of the system and the price of the asset. So this is in the Ethereum context, you actually burn Ether the more people use the system. I just think every blockchain in the long term is going to need that type of tight value accrual mechanism in order to appropriately scale. Because the types of values we're talking about, if these systems are going to host the global economic activity of the world, they're going to be insanely valuable. And the scale here is beyond what I think most people really comprehend. Even crypto bulls, I don't think really realize where we're actually going. And once we're there, this isn't going to be a buy your favorite coin This is like the global capital of the world allocating their capital to these blockchain assets. In that world, you need to be able to predict what value accrual looks like based on use, and you need to be able to model use and basically make asset allocations based on that. So the historical way we've done this is basically, I see a lot of users, so speculators are going to speculate. And I think that has crudely worked, but we're going to need a system that the use actually drives value to the underlying asset. And that's going to be, I think, a critical component of every blockchain that makes it. And how about these bridges to create the interoperability across layer one blockchains or into layer two? These one-off bespoke bridges, I don't think are the way. This is, okay, we want to move from Bitcoin to ETH. We want to move from Ethereum to Avalanche. I think it is bridge protocols that are based on economic security in the same way that Bitcoin or Ethereum itself is based on economic security. You can't just exploit three servers and take down Bitcoin. There's this incentive system that you have to exploit. And it's way harder and way costlier to exploit that incentive system. So I think the future of bridges is bridge protocols based on economic security instead of basically multi-sig or server security, rather than this bespoke one-to-one style of bridge that is more popular today. I just think that that's the early system. I also just broadly think that where we're going architecturally 
is going to be highly modular. And where do you see the most interesting potential winners in layer two protocols? I think one thing that a lot of people don't see about these layer two systems is I basically view layer twos as just a really good bridge experience to effectively launch a new chain. So yes, these systems are tightly coupled to Ethereum today, but once they get substantial use and substantial capital inside them and all sorts of app developers deploying straight to them, at some point they're going to say, wow, why don't we integrate to a different layer one too, where people can roll up their assets. And you see where that goes very quickly. So I think layer twos long-term start to look and feel a lot like layer ones that just have a really good bridge. We managed to go a fairly long way with barely a mention of NFTs. I would love to get your take on how you see NFTs evolving and where you see future opportunities. I am happy to see a little bit of the froth around NFTs as pure speculative objects disappear a little bit. I think that's one of the really interesting emergent use cases. And this idea of video game assets that can be composable across video games, I think it's very cool. So you could have an avatar that's sort of your main character in five different video games. The thing about NFTs that makes them interesting is that they are open and cross-platform. So you can't lock in your user to your proprietary system. I want to see a little bit of the hypiness even die further so we can really see what's left and we can actually then test for real what is actually useful and not just sort of a big fun trend for a second. I think we're starting to see the early cases of that. I mean, I talked about artist monetization. I think this is a big one. Again, I want to make sure that whatever we're designing is lasting and sustainable at scale. So just a couple DJs selling NFT assets to their fans, it's a really, really nice indicator of a larger term trend, but I do want to see real traction in that trend outside of a hype cycle, basically. And how about DeFi? Where are you excited about opportunities in DeFi? I think DeFi is just chipping away at the global financial system. I really do view it as where every financial transaction in the world will take place. It's going to be a long path, but I think that people are just continuing to chip away at new products and new concepts. I think one of the very interesting categories here, and an important one, is the coupling of offline assets to DeFi protocols. So being able to take a plot of land and use it as collateral to borrow in a pool, for example. And that is mostly legal technology. We can't just write software that'll make that perfect. It's going to require a lot of entrepreneurs operating in a legally complex area to enable that. But if we can couple offline collateral and assets with DeFi, it's at least a 10x, probably closer to 100x unlock from where DeFi is today. And how about DAOs? I really want to see DAOs zoom out in terms of the types of decisions they're making and focus on just being very, very good capital allocators and quit viewing themselves as startups that are sort of making operating decisions. It's just terribly inefficient to have any DAO like zoom in and make these microscopic decisions about who to hire or like an individual person's salary or stuff like that. It's just crazy to me. Instead, they need to allocate to basically an entrepreneur, whatever you want to call it, a manager type person who really runs that. They have to be tested and assessed, but the DAO has to act like a board or sort of like a fund that just perfects capital allocation and decision-making around that capital allocation. Because I don't think DAOs are using their capital as efficiently as they could at all. And I also think that DAOs are not thinking big enough in general. I think they're very focused on pragmatic problems that are a foot in front of them instead of thinking about the thousand foot view, you know, where are we going? How do we strategically use this money to scale by 10 times or by 100 times? I love that DAOs have found really good fit around managing DeFi protocols. And I think DAOs will only expand in the types of categories that they're managing. When I was talking about this open source software development, algorithmically paying the contributors on the Git repository, you can use DAOs to build software companies, I think. Again, they just have to do the capital allocation, though. They shouldn't be hiring the engineers. Last one in this laundry list, kind of topical now, stable coins. You mentioned algorithmic applications earlier. Obviously, algorithmic stable coins had some risk of late and would love your thoughts of how that evolves from here. 
the whole algo stable category has always been an experiment. It's more akin to how fiat money works, actually, than the hard money cryptocurrency we generally like to think about. The surprising thing to me is the scale that these experiments have gotten to and how many times they've collapsed. Luna was the largest by a huge margin, but not the first at all. I like decentralized stablecoin models. And this is like DAI from the MakerDAO system, as an example. But these collateral systems are what works, obviously. I'm open to more experiments with algorithmic stablecoins, but I don't think they should try to get to massive scale so quickly unless they feel like the mechanism is refined. But I don't know if there's a way to test the mechanism without getting to scale. It's a dangerous category, obviously. I just don't love the fact that USDC and Tether are so important to crypto because they are a centralizing choke point in many, many different ways. So in consensus, you talk about fork choice rule, which is if the blockchain forks, how do you know which fork to move to? And this has historically been sort of like a technical discussion. And now it's just which chain does USDC and Tether go to? Because they can't duplicate the offline reserves. When the chain forks, they really are going to determine the real chain. Stuff like that, I think a lot of people don't realize. They think, oh, the assets could be frozen and stuff. Well, that's obvious. But I think there's these slightly less obvious ways that they're big centralizing forces. I do want to see decentralized stablecoins grow a lot, but these algorithmic ones are dangerous. What are some other common misconceptions that people have about this whole ecosystem? I think that this is an economic and technological renaissance dressed up as a get-rich-quick scheme. So it's this weird thing where I think people come into crypto and they sort of think it's much simpler than it actually is. And they think about it as this tech thing when in fact it's mostly like a sociological and cultural phenomenon. And it's a way to organize huge, huge masses of people through basic incentive systems. That's grassroots and bottom-up rather than top-down. I just think it's way bigger and headier and more complicated than people think. And the funny part of it to me is that when people come in, they're like, I bought this coin and I'm trying to see if it goes up. It's sort of like you come in and the most basal instincts kick in, but then once you stick around a little bit, you realize you're part of this insanely complicated machine that nobody is in charge of. And software that nobody controls is governing everyone's incentives the genie is fully out of the bottle and it's this unstoppable vortex that you've been sucked into. When you start to realize that the protocol incentives are guiding your personal behavior, it's like a very Skynet style feeling. It's sort of, wow, how did I really get here? And you start to realize that a protocol that's running autonomous software is creating incentives that led to you being here. I just think that you come in and it's sort of simple and cute or something kind of fun. And then you realize that you're part of this unstoppable machine that is way bigger and headier and more unpredictable and more complex than anyone on earth can comprehend. I think that's a perfect place to close, but Olaf, I can't let you go with that asking you a couple of fun closing questions. So what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I love music and music production. I love rock climbing, bouldering. I love dancing. What's your biggest personal pet peeve? I don't know. The small stuff doesn't get to me. I don't really have pet peeves. How about on the investment side? Do you have a biggest investment pet peeve? It's entrepreneurs building for capital markets instead of building for users. It's hard to put exactly unless you've been in like 10,000 pitches, especially in unproven categories like crypto, where it's unclear if you have product market fit or it's a complex business model. Sometimes it's just easier maybe to convince me versus convince your user that the product is good. And I think that's a really dangerous fallacy. You need to orient around your users, not around your investors or your future investors rather. That's one that I think is more prevalent in crypto than other categories. And it's probably my biggest investing pet peeve. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Definitely Brian Armstrong of Coinbase. I just think he is so insanely smart and calm and just one foot in front of the other for like 10 years, 
just grinding to build the financial institution of the future. He taught me a lot at Coinbase. I just think it's insane, the story of Coinbase. And just having been really a part of it from the super, super early days is just something really special. I don't think I'll ever have that chance again. The second one, I would probably say the philosopher David Pierce. He's a transhumanist philosopher and just talks a lot about motivation and hedonism and happiness in sort of a philosophical way. And a lot of what he says appeals to me. I think he's 100 or 200 years from now going to be remembered as way ahead of his time. But today, almost thought crime from a cultural perspective. What is it that you've taken out of his teachings? The core insight is, are we happier than our ancestors? And are people who have more resources happier than people who have fewer resources? And I think anecdotally, I think the answer is basically no. So then it's all of society and the systems of politics and the market economy is all oriented around basically more efficient resource distribution, at least in theory. Let's say we could solve that. Let's say it was actually a solvable optimization problem and we got all the variables right and resource distribution was solved. Obviously, this is a thought experiment. That's not possible. The question is, what have we done? What have we accomplished? We really haven't solved the deepest problems of the human condition which more so have to do with what I would call the hardware, the evolutionary hardware, which is we're still trapped inside this sort of simian brain that was the product of, in a sense, random choice evolution. It's designed around reproduction rather than around happiness or well-being for the person that lives inside it. So if we could get comfortable with basically synthetic consciousness, couldn't we create a consciousness and feedback loops and things like that, that were more geared towards happiness of the person experiencing it rather than successful reproduction biologically. So that to me resonates a lot because it's kind of like, what is the problem of humanity that we are focused on? And no matter how you rearrange these political solutions, at the end of the day, you're not solving these really, really hard problems. It just made me reframe. It's like everything we're doing with politics and the market economy we need to create new incentives to actually better people's lives rather than just try to give them more resources. What's been your biggest mistake and what did you learn from it? The biggest mistake I've made is ever really like doubting myself. I think you just have to 100% invest in yourself and just fully commit all in 100% to what you believe in and what you're doing. And a million people will tell you you are wrong and you need to actually not care at all what they think. And you just need to say, I don't care. I think this is right. I'm doing it. I think I have mostly done that actually. But even the like 5% of the time where I'm like, man, so many people think that what I'm doing is a poor decision. Should I really go through with it? The answer is just, if you think the answer is yes, the answer is yes. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My parents are incredibly kind people and they have huge hearts. And I think the main teaching is just be good to the people around you. And obviously there's hard situations in high stakes capital management and investing where it's tricky and hard decisions need to be made, but do it all sort of with grace and kindness as best you possibly can. I think that's really the main thing they taught me. All right, Olaf, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew earlier in life? As an early adolescent, feeling like, man, I am smarter than my teachers, than my coaches, the pastor at church, and feeling like I actually understand the world better than all these people. What they think I want and what I want are different. Basically, like that friction between the way I saw the world and the way the people that I'm supposed to be listening to or looking up to or learning from or learning how to think or learning what to think about, the incongruity between those two, being like 13 or 14 and feeling that, and then at the same time being like, wait a second, Olaf, you're being like that angsty adolescent who thinks they're no better than all the people around them that actually have years of wisdom and experience. So it's kind of like this, oh, I feel this way, but when I really cerebrally think about it, I should be aware that. They actually have a lot to teach me and there's probably things that I don't know about yet and I have to experience. 
then getting older and realizing that 100% my first instinct was correct. They actually didn't know anything, had no concept of what was happening. And I actually knew way better than they did, even as a super young person, what was best for me. It goes back to me saying, bet on yourself. I just think it's think for yourself and do what you want. All of our society is basically designed to brainwash you into thinking about certain things or how to think about those things. These things we just call school or church, they're semi-voluntary. And I don't think it's this big, evil, centrally planned organizations or something. That's not what I mean to say. But what I do mean to say is they are designed to tell you how to think. And I just think that when you're young, you have this window of opportunity to sort of question it. And if you don't, you're sort of trapped in it forever. Olaf, thanks so much for taking the time. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, I appreciate it, Ted. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. Thank you.